Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Paul Wilson. Uh, if you don't know me, um, I am one of the three pastors that we have uh, here at Redeemer Church, uh, including Ethan and Michael down here. Um, so uh, as, we, as we begin in our passage today, uh, we're going to be talking about Jesus how, and how he is a man. He's made of flesh and blood, just like we are, and he experiences uh, some of the same things, like hunger, uh, that we do. Um, we're also going to see that he is, he is divine, uh, and he is also the branches. Missed that little cheesy Bible joke there. I'm a tough, tough crowd, man. <laughs> um, yeah, so sorry, sorry about the joke. I, I heard that uh, earlier uh, this week, and just kind of had to go out on a, on a limb there. No. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I imagine that you're all familiar with uh, the Snickers commercials, um, where you know there's uh, somebody that's hangry, um, and you know normally they're kind of played by uh, an actor who's notoriously in a in a bad mood. Um, so so then like you know they're just acting very like, kind of mean and dramatic until finally one of their friends hands them a Snickers, uh, and then they turn back in, back into themselves and and calm down. Uh, and as, as fallen, like, sinful men and women, uh, we unfortunately are weak and vulnerable um, to things like angriness uh, and, and much, much worse than that. Uh, Jesus, when he took on flesh, experienced some of these same discomforts and sufferings, like hungriness and temptation and pain, the same things that we experience. But praise Jesus that he never succumbed to weakness that we are always succumbing to in our flesh, uh, that, lead, that leads us to sin. Um, in, in this passage uh, today of the, of the fig tree, as, as I found out, it's actually used um, by, by atheists and uh, deniers of Christ's deity to say that Jesus was nothing more than another sinful man, maybe a, a good man who was a prophet, but nothing more than just another man who succumbed to sin just like us. Uh, Bertrand Russell, uh, for example, is a, was a British philosopher and intellectual uh, who held this belief. Uh, he actually cited this uh, passage in an essay he entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And he said in that, This incident displays Jesus as a man who expressed vindictive fury to an innocent plant, manifesting behavior that was not that of a righteous man, let alone the Son of God. So he's saying that, that Jesus sinned, by lashing out in unrighteous anger at this tree. But, th but this argument in itself is assuming something that, that the text here doesn't say. Uh, it doesn't say that Jesus' response was even out of anger. Now, it, admittedly, the text doesn't spell out exactly what his motive was. It doesn't spell it out word for word right here uh, in this passage. Uh, but in, in the context of the lesson uh, in, the, in the temple um, and his overall character, uh, that we see in the rest of the Gospels. Uh, assuming that this was a reaction rooted in, in sinful anger is, is just not, not correct. Uh, I know that, that Russell and many others that are making this argument are, are atheists, um, so they're, they're trying to back up their point that they, that, they already, that they already hold this belief that they have. But, I mean, come on. Like, if, if you're calling yourself a philosopher, an intellectual, let's look at the the literary device here that's being used to make a, make a point. Uh, and as we'll, as we'll go on, you can see in, in this passage that the, the lesson on the fig tree um, has sandwiched like right in the middle of it 
this little episode about the temple. Uh, so he's using this as, as a, an object lesson, a parable, uh, you might say. Uh, so if you're going to make a judgment about someone's motive behind their actions, um, you're probably going to look at how they normally conduct themselves. Uh, if I were to see Michael or Ethan or any of these guys coming out of a store and they've got an armful of, of stuff that they got in the store, I don't assume that they just stole it, robbed the store. That's not how they normally conduct themselves. So that's not my first thought. Um, so yeah, that's not the, the immediate thing that I, that I jumped to. That uh, citizen's arrest, um, yeah, that's, <laughs> that, doesn't, that wouldn't make any sense, I me mean, calling them out for stealing something just because I'm seeing them carry something out of the store. Uh, and Jesus is the, the only perfect, sinless man to ever live. And this passage here is, is not an exception. He was faced with some, some pretty severe temptation from Satan in the desert. And, and given the other great temptations uh, that, that he was faced with, do we really think that the first time, the only time that he succumbed to temptation was by hangrily killing a tree? Now, I, yeah, I, I don't think so. <laughs> The, the passage uh, does not even, even say that he reacted in anger to this fruitless tree. That, that's less likely just a, a false assumption, maybe how we would react. We're hungry, it's early in the morning, um, and we find this tree hoping to, to find fruit, and there's none. That might be our reaction, but that doesn't appear to be his. Uh, so we can't put how, our own reaction on Jesus here. Uh, and, and to say that this was a sinful reaction to me seems like quite a, quite a leap. Um, we also have seen throughout the Gospels that Jesus often taught through parables and object lessons. Uh, this curse against the fig tree is a, is a parable by, by way of an object lesson um, in order to teach his disciples about the purpose of what was about to occur in the temple. So on, on the road, Jesus finds this fruitless fig tree and rebukes it. And upon entering the temple, he finds fruitless faith in the most religious people in Israel. This lesson in the fig tree is meant to point out the same idea that we see in, in James 2, that faith without works is dead. So before we go any further, let's just take, take a moment in prayer uh, that the Holy Spirit guides us uh, through this passage today for, for his own glory. God, we thank you so much for, for your word. Um, and the, the message of the gospel uh, that you have given us through it. Uh, the, the message of, of salvation through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we praise you that, that you lived a life without sin, uh, not only to show us an example of how we should live, what we should strive for, um, but so that you would be without blemish. Uh, but then you took, took our stain of sin upon yourself. Lord, we praise you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. So, if you remember from, uh, from last week, um, if you were in the sermon last week when we were at the park, uh, we saw Jesus enter Jerusalem. Large crowds of people had begun to gather in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. Uh, many of them might have either seen Jesus uh, or heard about him and his teachings uh, heard about his miracles that he had been doing, and maybe even heard that he, this guy might be the long-awaited Messiah that it has been prophesied. 
So up until this point, Jesus had been trying to keep kind of a, a low profile, despite the crowds that tended to gather around him. Um, but in these, in these last days of his ministry, something is starting to change. Something's different. Uh, as Sinclair Ferguson says, his majesty and authority began to shine through from the moment of his entry into Jerusalem. As he entered the east gate of the city, the crowds welcomed him with shouts of praise, as we saw. The, the people were laying down articles of clothing and palm branches and shouting Hosanna, which literally means, Lord, save us now. They were honoring him like, like a king returning from, from a great victory. This grand entrance is what we often call the triumphal entry, which is what we celebrate now on, on Palm Sunday, the week prior to Easter Sunday. And then once he arrived in the city, he went, went straight to the temple. Uh, and now, like for us, in this post-temple kind of church age, uh, we may have a hard time seeing why going straight to the, the temple was important for Jesus to do. Uh, the, the temple, and more specifically, this temple, uh, was the heart of Jewish religion. Uh, unlike now, whereas as Christians, Jesus acts as our high priest, um, and, the, and the Holy Spirit dwells within us, which makes our own hearts like the temple of the Lord. The, the Jews of this time, though, had to make sacrifices to atone for their sins in this physical temple. And for a, a brief background um, on this temple, and I say brief because you know, we, we don't have time to break down pro probably like 15 books in, in the Old Testament. That would take a lot longer than all day. Um, but many years prior, um, as, the, as the Israelites were, were fleeing Egypt from their, from their uh, slavery and captivity there, uh, they, they had a, a tent-like structure called the, the tabernacle, which housed the, the Ark of the Covenant that, that God gave instructions on building, which had the, uh, the Ten Commandments in it. Uh, it was like God's presence that they carried with them, and they housed it in this big tent thing that they could break down and, and move along. Uh, later then, as after King David captured Jerusalem, uh, the Ark was moved there, a, a permanent place it could stay, um, and David's son, Solomon, who was the next king of Israel, uh, would build the first temple uh, in Jerusalem around 957 B.C., before Christ. Uh, that, that first temple would then be destroyed a, a few hundred years later in 587 B.C., uh, when the Israelites were taken into captivity by the Babylonians uh, as judgment for their sin. Uh, Babylon then was later defeated by, by Persia, and the Israelites were allowed by Persia to, to go back to Jerusalem, uh, and then they, they rebuilt the temple, and it was finished around 515 B.C. So sorry about the, the boring history lesson. We're, we're past that now. Uh, but, but anyway, after all of that to say, the, the temple is the core of Jewish religion, where they had to go uh, to make sacrifices. And while there were other, other temples in smaller towns around, this was the temple that they had to go to um, like once a year. Uh, people would travel even long distances, um, specifically like right now during, during the Passover week. Lots of people would be gathering here at this time. Uh, and this was, this was a, a particularly busy, busy week around the temple. Merchants were starting to set up uh, to buy and sell animals so that people could then buy from them uh, to make their sacrifices. And uh, I found an estimate that around 250,000 lambs, a quarter of a million, uh, would be sold for sacrifice uh, during this week alone. Uh, so, you know, this is like a, this is a big chaotic uh, thing going on here. And there, there are other animals. It's, as it says, there's, there's pigeons and other things that were being sold for sacrifice too. 
about 250,000 lambs. So now, back to where we left off uh, last week. And Jesus went straight to the temple after the triumphal entry. And now, we, we, don't, we don't know exactly how long he spent there in the temple. Uh, it doesn't you know, give us a, a whole list of events that happened after he got there. But it says he looked around at everything. As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So then, instead of lingering around there or deciding to speak in the temple right then, he and his disciples just went back to Bethany, which is where they started um, prior to the, the triumphal entry. And Bethany is this like, kind of nearby village that's up on, on the hill on the Mount of Olives right, right, south, right outside of Jerusalem. And this village kind of is acting like uh, Jesus' kind of home base uh, here during these last few days before his crucifixion. Uh, and, you know, like, who knows exactly how, how all of this played out um, in the temple, but I, I kind of see Jesus like looking around, um, seeing all that, all that's going on here, um, and deciding it's better to save what I've got for this temple, this re- this rebuke for for the next day. Um, and I just like think about the the divine self control that this shows. This seems to completely demolish to me Bertrand Russell's argument that Jesus was a hothead that lashed out on a tree. Um, instead, Jesus, who sees the temple of the Lord, adulterated with sin, still takes a whole night before returning to chastise the leaders for what they're allowing to happen here. Was this, did he decide to take this whole, whole night because he was too tired uh, or needed, you know, needed a good night's sleep? Uh, was it because he really just he needed a lot more time? It's already kind of late. I'm going to need a lot of hours to, to, to do what I'm, I need to do here. Um, or maybe does he need to, to go off and pray? Um, and all of these, yeah, are, are speculation because it doesn't say. Uh, but I think we can we can take the rest of Scripture and how Jesus tends to deal with issues, um, and and kind of get an idea of maybe what's going on. Uh, it's it's certainly possible that some or all of these speculations are true. Uh, Jesus was fully God and fully man. He could have been tired and needed or needed more time. Uh, but we also see him frequently going away to pray. It was a frequent occurrence uh, for Jesus to, to leave his disciples, go off somewhere alone, um, and spend time with his Heavenly Father. Uh, so, so now uh, that I've, I've done plenty of recapping from last week, finally we're getting to uh, the verses we read this morning. Um, let's reread uh, verses 12 through 14. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So it's now the next morning after after the triumphal entry um, and his brief uh, trip to the temple. Um, And he he and his disciples have have rested, probably spent some time in prayer, and are now headed back down the hill uh, to Jerusalem. And it's, it's likely early in the morning, breakfast time. Jesus is fully man, like I said, and, and needs some, some sustenance early in the morning. Uh, he looks and sees this fig tree in bloom near the road and approaches it in hopes of finding a figgy breakfast. Too, a little too early for figgy pudding, maybe. Uh, but he, he found nothing to eat on it. Uh, now, the, now the passage says that, that it was not the season for figs. So... Was Jesus just not aware of the normal fig production cycle? I don't, I don't think that's the case. Um, 
he was he was there for the fig tree's design and creation, um, and fig trees were extremely common um, in this area of the world, uh, like cows or maple syrup in, in Vermont, something that would be very familiar um, that people would have on their on their farmland, um, and wouldn't be uncommon to see just next to the road, possibly like this one. Um, so what's going on here is is, he, is it just early in the morning? He's not really thinking about it. Um, there, there's two possible explanations that I've found on this. Uh, fully ripe fig season was typically more like in the late summer and fall, uh, but this was more than likely springtime. So while, while fig trees normally wouldn't have fully ripe figs at this time of year, they should have had little pre-figs, which are called pagin, uh, which would be kind of like small buds or knob-like things um, that would later mature into, into figs. Uh, so these could these could actually also be eaten uh, for for nutrition, but you know possibly didn't take, taste as good as an actual fig. Um, the other explanation um, is that there were some more rare strains of fig trees um, that would produce fully mature figs at different times of the year. They weren't as common, but it, it was a, a thing. Um, but either way, the appearance of this fig tree from a distance, being in full bloom, was indicating that it had fruit to offer, and it didn't. Finding nothing to eat on the tree, Jesus curses it. <clears throat> this, par this miracle here is admittedly different uh, from Jesus' other miracles in that it is the only destructive miracle uh, in the Gospels. Uh, but while, while it is different, uh, it is still not un uncharacteristic of Jesus. Uh, this was not an impulsive, sinful reaction. He condemned the tree to never produce fruit and created an object lesson. As uh, J.C. Ryle once said, we cannot doubt for a moment that this whole transaction was an emblem of spiritual things. It was a parable in deeds as full of meaning as any of our Lord's parables in words. So as a, as a side note, I, Jesus also just has amazing patience to not immediately resolve this object lesson. Um, he just does it and, and they, they move along. He doesn't immediately explain the reason for this. Um, he waits for what he knows is coming. Uh, they're going to the temple. Um, and uh, there's going to be a, a connection there. So he doesn't immediately resolve this, but kind of lets it, let the, the suspense build, sort of. Um, and, you know, like, like I said earlier, it's the, uh, the episode here in the temple is sandwiched kind of right in between uh, the story of the, of the fig tree. So I think there's, there's kind of some symbolic meaning here that Mark obviously caught on to and is using the way he wrote this uh, to kind of help explain it. Um, so let's, uh, let's continue to read on now, uh, starting in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now Jesus and his disciples make it back to the temple, and we finally get a picture of what Jesus had looked around at uh, the night before. The temple was a whole... Was a, was a very large um, uh, place, and 
had multiple kind of progressing sections to it. I think there's, we've got a picture up here. There you go. So yeah, not, not like a church uh, that we might think of in the West at all. Um, inside the, the outermost section, this big area all the way around the outside, um, was called the, the Court of the Gentiles. Uh, Jews and Gentiles both were allowed to come to worship and pray uh, and make sacrifices in this area. Uh, but the Gentiles could only go this far. They couldn't continue on into further sections there. Uh, the, the next smallest section, kind of surrounding that little building there uh, in the middle, um, Jewish men who were ceremonially clean were allowed to go in there. If they uh, had done anything that made them ceremonially unclean, they couldn't go in there until they had gone through the, the steps laid out in the, the law earlier in the Old Testament. Um, then the, that innermost section uh, was restricted basically for the priests who would be making the sacrifices on the altar for the people. Um, it was in the, that largest section, that kind of courtyard area, the court of the Gentiles, that we see has been converted into something more like a giant flea market or stockyard or farmer's market, you know, something like that. Um, so, you know, like what, what's so evil about that? What, what causes him to, to have this reaction? Uh, Jesus points it out in verse 17. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? So, so one, they have made this place that is meant to be open to all people to come and pray and worship and made it into this extremely busy marketplace and stockyard. Uh, clearly they didn't care uh, if the Gentiles had a decent place to come to pray and worship. I remember I said about 250,000 lambs would be sold this week alone. So even though this is a very large courtyard area, it is packed with animals. Imagine the, the sound and smell and just a lot going on here. Not a place that is welcoming to come to worship and pray. Uh, but also they've They've turned this practice of selling animals uh, for sacrifice into kind of a, a racket. Uh, the, the Sanhedrin had turned the sale of these animals uh, into a, like a lucrative source of revenue uh, for themselves. Uh, for, for many of these people coming from far away with their families, it would be just too difficult to, to load up all the animals that each one were going to need to make sacrifices. Um, so it was easier to get here um, and then buy their animals. Um, but it was often at, at a huge markup. Um, these these uh, vendors here would like buy animals from, from other uh, maybe farmers in, in the area, but then they were selling them to these people that needed them for, for so much more. Um, and not, not just the price gouging here, but they were, the people doing the buying were required to use a certain currency, not the Roman currency. Uh, so there's an exchange rate now. Like when we go out of the country and have to convert our dollars into pesos, euros, or whatever, uh, there's usually a tariff, some kind of fee type thing. So the same thing is happening here, but again, another huge markup. Uh, and as, as a result of this like, blatant use, misuse of the temple, uh, Jesus begins his most intense rebuke of the religious elite that we've seen yet. He starts pointing out that this is supposed to be a house of prayer, open to everyone. He's referring directly to Isaiah 56, 7. It says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, 
for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And he goes on uh, by telling them that the prophet Jeremiah prophesied about them. Jeremiah 7.11 says, Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? So he doesn't exactly have a warm place in the hearts of these religious leaders to begin with. Uh, but in these last few days, with the triumphal entry, everyone praising him, um, and now this fierce rebuke of their corrupt business, uh, robbing the Gentiles in their place of worship, that, that hate is, is growing intensely for him. Uh, they, they fear him, uh, that so many people are beginning to, to follow him and hear and believe his teaching, which challenges their own authority. At this point, they're actively working out how they can, can get rid of him. Uh, in just a few short days, they would accomplish this goal. Well, this was all part of Jesus' plan. Jesus would soon accomplish his own goal, his own purpose of coming into the world, which was to take our sins and the wrath of God upon himself. So the next day, he and his disciples happened to be passing back by this fig tree again. Um, and it says in verses uh, 20 through 21, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And as the passage said earlier, the disciples had heard this curse of the tree, but it's not recorded that they, that they said anything about it at the moment. Uh, obviously, it at least made an impression on Peter. Uh, who now, calls, who now calls attention to the withered tree. And this, this tree isn't just like starting to look bad, kind of withering, it needs a little rain on it. It's, it's dead and withered to its roots, it says. It's maybe even rotting, uh, despite being in full bloom just the day before and producing no fruit. Now it's only good to be thrown on a fire. So Jesus then doesn't go out of his way even now to, to verbally explain the overall meaning of this object lesson and parable, but instead goes on to explain what, what good, fruitful, God-like like faith looks like. Uh, but even without direct explanation, the, the meaning is clear. God's judgment on Jerusalem and the temple itself for the fruit, fruitlessness was coming. Jesus' destruction and rebuke in the temple courtyard you know, just a little bit ago, uh, was not the judgment itself, uh, but was, was only the beginning, more like a, a warning of the real judgment that was to come. Years later, uh, around 40 years later in uh, AD 70, the temple would be destroyed completely again, uh, this time by the Romans. And R.C. Sproul says this, the lesson of the tree applies to Israel, symbolized in the Old Testament as God's fig tree. Just like the barren fig tree Jesus cursed, Israel had proven unfruitful with respect to God's purpose for her. Her worship had become an exercise in hypocrisy. As the fig tree was cursed, so was the nation of Israel, fit only to be cast into the fire. So while the, the lesson of the fig tree directly applied to the spiritual state of Israel uh, and their fruitless disobedience leading again to their judgment, it can also be applied to us. As Christians, like I said before, our hearts serve as God's temple now. Um, after Jesus was crucified a few days later, the heavy curtain that uh, was in between the Holy of Holies, that, that smallest section there, um, 
It was, it was torn from top to bottom. Um, that, that area was really like no longer needed. We have Christ who acts as our, our great high priest. Uh, we, we don't have to take our, our guilt and sin and, and confess to a priest. We, ha- we have Jesus uh, who was also acted you know, not only as the, the perfect great high priest but also as the perfect sacrifice a few days later here. But while we have this blessed assurance uh, in, our, in our salvation because of Christ, we must not take this lesson of the fig tree and temple and let it go as if it doesn't apply to our hearts, as if it only applied to, to Israel and, and their disobedience. Uh, Jesus continually throughout his ministry called out the religious leaders uh, for doing things that made them look holy, but was really a shallow, fruitless faith. Their actions looked good from the outside, just like the leaves on the fig tree. But faith in the most holy God was not present on their spiritual limbs. They had no interest in furthering the kingdom of God. There was no gospel to be found on their lips for those around them that needed salvation. Sometimes the, the Holy Spirit may, may turn over things in us, turn over tables, kind of, um, in, in you and me. When we are when acting fruitlessly, uh, like like the Israelites here, where um, if these things have, have gotten in the way of, of a deeper, more fruitful faith in Him, simply being a good, moral person, even attending church, uh, tithing or giving to charity, singing loudly during worship, or even preaching and teaching here, is are just leaves on the tree without authentic faith in God. And so, as I finish, uh, I again quote from from James chapter 2, in verse 18, it says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you faith by my works. And then later in verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So while works themselves do not save us. Works will result from a true faith in Christ. And as James says, faith that does not result in this fruit is dead. So let's pray that we constantly seek a deeper faith in Christ that results in fruit and we're not content with just just meaningless leaves. Let's pray. God, we pray this, uh, this message um, on our hearts today, Lord, not, not to just look at it as uh, a rebuke that you had on a wrong that was happening in the temple um, and move on as if it doesn't apply to us. Uh, but Lord, I pray that you, you plant this in us. Um, and Lord, if there is anything, even good things, good moral things, that the world would look at us and say, great people, but they're getting in the way of authentic faith in you. Lord, re- remove them, change them, plant them in, in faith in you instead of having their roots in, in ourselves, uh, in our own merits. Uh, God, we know that you are our perfect sacrifice. We praise you for that, uh, and that you are our great high priest, that we don't have to travel uh, to come see 
Lord, you are always there uh, for us to confess and to get those things out of the way. Uh, Lord, grow our faith in you. Lord, in your name we pray. Amen.